0: Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at ShorensteinCenter.org.
1: So let's get started. My name is Richard Parker, and I'm going to be uh, chairing this session of the Shorenstein Center Brown Bags. Our guest today is Greg Ipp, who's the U.S. economics editor for The Economist and is based in Washington. Uh, Mr. Ipp is the author of The Little Book of Economics, which I commend to all of you, uh, and uh, appears frequently on radio and television, and as I've learned is a Canadian by birth, and so has been interested in issues of economic development that cover all of or most of North America uh, for many years. Uh, And uh, he's talking today with us on uh, the liberal argument. Uh, for uh, deficit reduction and I think this ought to be quite interesting so thanks sure. thank you to have you here.
2: so I guess the risk when you write something that says I'm going to make a liberal case is that conservatives are going to basically dismiss you because they think you know they already know what you're going to say and they're not interested the liberals will accuse you of appropriating their labels to make a subversive case um, I'm not actually trying to do either uh, <laughs> I call it a liberal case for deficit reduction partly because it's inspired by my uh, my own um, background in history and journalism. I became a journalist in uh, I graduated from journalism school in 88 with a degree in journalism and economics. I started working in 89 uh, in Canada. My first five years were spent in Canada, and they were heavily um, influenced by the enormous deficit struggles Canada went through at that time. And um, the, at the t- when I first started writing about the issues, we had a conservative government in Canada that um, failed repeatedly to get control of Canada's um, deficit and debt problems. And eventually a liberal government came in in 1993 and solved the problem. And then in 96, I moved to the United States. And while most of my responsibility initially was covering financial markets, it wasn't covering economics, (coughs) again, uh, what was in the air that time was you had a Democratic president who had inherited a lot of uh, difficult fiscal um, uh, problems from Republican administrations and proceeded to solve them. And so almost by historical accident, I have come to uh, regard liberals as the traditional deficit hawks, not conservatives. Um, So when I approach the question now, what do we do about the deficit, I kind of ask, well, what would a liberal, a liberal who's trying to make the case for why we need a more aggressive approach to getting the deficit down, what kind of arguments would they make? And I sort of draw on the the people that I listened to and was influenced by uh, in my own early uh, career. Um, The first thing I think is that deficit hawks generally they're not born, they're made. Uh, Very few presidents actually run for office promising to um, reduce the deficit. Those that do usually lose. Um, And so essentially what happens is that they are convinced by circumstances once they're in office that dealing with the deficit is necessary to dealing with other things that are important to them. That was certainly the case of both the liberal government in Canada in the early 1990s and I think of Bill Clinton. Obama right now, he says the right things. He sounds sort of like um, vaguely hawkish on the deficit. He surrounds himself with. Uh, deficit hawks from the Clinton administration, but so far his policies and priorities do not yet make a convincing case that he is one of them, that he, in fact, has bought into the liberal case for deficit reduction. Um, And, in fact, I think that the risk is that he surrenders that title to conservatives. Paul Ryan has a budget out this morning. It's got a lot of things in it that liberals will not like at all. But he does make a, in my view, sincere attempt to uh, get the deficit down. And that is actually not what the traditional approach, that is not tr- what conservatives had been doing for the prior uh, 20 years. Conservatives were primarily concerned with getting the size of government smaller, and whether that involved a bigger deficit or a smaller deficit was secondary. I do think that Ryan started out as that traditional conservative, wanting mostly small government for his own sake. But I think in the last few years you've seen him um, become more, much more in a, in a deficit hawkish direction. Uh, what I want to do here then, Is First of all, uh, lay some of the arguments I think liberals have made in the past for why we need to do more on the deficit, but also propose some of the ways forward that this can be done in ways that I think um, accomplish the goals that liberals have traditionally cared the most about. Uh, The first thing I think we have to do is talk about why we have a deficit the size it is and actually um, uh, distinguish between different types of deficits. Now, we have a very large deficit right now primarily because the economy is weak. what you see here is two different um, lines. The one, um, as you may know, every borrower in the economy, everybody who saves a dollar in the economy must be met by somebody who borrows that dollar. It's one of the, time, it's one of the few actual rules of economics must, which must always be true, saving must equal borrowing. So when you enter a recession or a crisis-caused recession where the private sector not only doesn't want to borrow but in many cases cannot borrow, their saving is essentially forced to go up, which means that um, if everybody is forced to save at the same time, the economy will collapse because nobody will spend. And so the, f- the federal government, by necessity, had to step into the process and become the borrower of last resort. And if they had not allowed the deficit to expand as fast as they had, the economy would have been much, much worse shaped. So the deficit we have now is deficit by necessity. So the question becomes: When do you? Uh, so that isn't the the time to cut the deficit is not when the private sector is itself trying to uh, get its. Um, uh, balance sheet uh, in shape because if the public and private sector try to reduce their borrowing at the same time, the economy will uh, will stagnate or or shrink. This is what Keynes called the paradox of thrift. So um, knowing when to, to, to um, pivot from uh, stimulus to austerity is actually not that complicated. In most circumstances, the federal government doesn't need to worry about um, getting employment up. That's the job of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve basically says, is unemployment too high? Yes, we're going to cut interest rates. But that rule goes out the window when interest rates are at zero, which is the situation we've been at for the last few years and will be at for the next few years if we believe what the Fed is saying. And so that tells you that it is a dangerous time to get – go whole hog into austerity now because the Fed is not there to absorb the harm that it does to the economy. So. What is the case for uh, getting the deficit down? Now, what what you'll hear all the time, you heard Paul Ryan make this case now, you hear Pete Peterson make this case, is that if we don't, gosh, if we don't deal with the deficit now, there's going to be a crisis, we're going to be just like Greece. This is actually not a new argument. I've been hearing variants of this argument basically since the 1980s when I first started writing about these issues. Um, It's a popular view, and now that you've got the Euro crisis, it's also an easy message to sell. But the problem is that it's also wrong. Um, The comparisons between Greece and the United States are so profound that I can barely begin to scratch the surface here, it starts not just with the fact that their debts are so much larger, but the fact that they don't even own, control their own currency. And almost without exception, debt crises happen to countries that borrow in somebody else's currency. The United States borrows not just in its own currency, but it's the world's most desired currency, the dollar, the reserve currency. And the fact that the Federal Reserve can print as many as it wants to is great comfort to anybody who wants to buy a treasury bond. You may <laughs> wish you'd ended up buying a different investment, but you don't really doubt that at the end of the day you'll get 100 cents on the dollar back. Somebody who buys a Greek bond or a Spanish bond or an Italian bond and doesn't have that reassurance. Then there's the, these important historical, political, and institutional um, factors. <coughs> in the last 200 years, Greece has been in default over half of that time, the United States zero. Um, on issues of transparency, honesty, um, and uh, the, uh, the uh, ease of doing business in those countries, Greece has much more in common with a developing nation, whereas the United States is one of the most institutionally strong countries in the world. And for all these reasons, it's just, in my view um, facetious to compare the Syrian of the United States with that of Greece of almost any country, by the way, <coughs> that doesn't control its own currency, um, any non-OECD, any, uh, almost any OECD country. you might they're similar to say with Canada or Japan, but certainly not with Greece or Italy or Spain. Um, so that then brings you to the question, well, One of the problems with this crisis talk is that it says, uh, first of all, is that it's probably going to be wrong. So if you keep saying for 20 years and it never happens, it begins to destroy your credibility and nobody listens to you, the second possible is they will listen to you and they'll do the wrong thing. In my view, that's more or less what we've done. So when the President talks about the $2.5 trillion in deficit reduction we've done so far, it's actually $3.5 trillion if you assume the sequester will stay in place, Um, you can see that two-thirds of it came out of the discretionary side of spending. But a quarter of it came from revenue, um, taxes, higher taxes. and The remainder was a tiny bit of um, mandatory, which means Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and so on. And the rest was interest savings. And there's a couple of problems with this. The first problem is that it came exactly at the wrong time. I mean, this is kind of we were reducing the deficit exactly when we should not be doing it, when the private sector is deleveraging, when the Federal Reserve is utterly incapable of fully offsetting that pressure. So that's the first problem. The... Um, the second problem is that uh, it's the wrong target because t- discretionary spending and defense spending are not really where the problem is in, the econ- in, uh, uh, in terms of our fiscal finances. Any liberals and conservatives agree that in the long term, the real pressure on spending and the deficit comes from mandatory uh, Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security, and a variety of other um, entitlement programs. And that reflects primarily de- demographics because the baby boomers are, re- are retiring and the ongoing <coughs> upward march of health care costs. Um these, are, these risks are not new, and they are also not only liberals who've been ma- – and they're not necessarily conservative arguments, and that, again, is another problem. By talking – when people who worry about the deficit talk always as if it's, you know, the choice is a crisis or not a crisis, I think that they actually fail to drive home what the real risks are of not dealing with these deficits allowing this spending keep growing. The first, and this is an uncontroversial point of economics, which is that especially once the economy is back at full employment, the paradox of thrift ends. And when the government borrows, it comes at the expense of somebody else's investing. And so a variety of standard rules of thumb tell us that uh, an extra 40 percentage points on GDP uh, of debt, which is roughly where we'll end up at the end of this process versus 2007, reduces the level of GDP about 3 or 4 percent in the long run. That's a real decline in our standard of living. Uh, Peter Orsag who was budget director for um, uh, Barack Obama um, uh, wrote a paper back in 2005 or 2006 I I think saying that deficit of 3.5% of GDP, which is what we were running at the time, lowered um, GDP in the long run by 1% to 2%. Now. Um, Even stabilizing the debt-to-GDP ratio, which is what Obama's uh, goal is, isn't good enough because the higher the level of debt you stabilize at, the more private capital you've crowded out and and the smaller the economy and our standard of living will be in the long run. Um, But the other problem is that he doesn't really stabilize debt-to-GDP, as his own numbers show, is that as you get to the end of the 10-year window, um, he's talked about, for example, oh, all we need is $1.5 trillion of deficit reduction. All that does is it stabilizes it in the next seven or eight years. And then the problem of entitlement starts to kick in again and starts ratcheting um, inexorably higher at, outside the 10-year window. And as those entitlements keep growing, they begin to crowd everything else out. And again, this is an argument that liberals have made, a paper that um, uh, Bill Gale, Alan Auerbach and Jason Furman, who's now a very good, excellent economist, who's now in the White House, they wrote this paper in 2008, near the end of the Bush administration saying that if you properly measure the gap between long-term spending and revenue, it comes around 8% of GDP. And a gap of that size raises serious concerns about the fiscal outlook. And that gap is now actually larger than it was in 2008. Why do we worry about this? Well, we worry about this for a couple of reasons. First of all, as you spend more, as the debt gets har- larger, you spend more on interest on the debt. And interest becomes the biggest single expenditure that you have. It crowds out lots of stuff you care about. It Crowds out defense, it crowds of discretionary. It, it crowds out your ability to do a lot of things you care about. And I remember this distinctively from my time in Canada. One of the top government officials told me that it wasn't like a crisis that, that forced the Liberal government at the time <coughs> to, to finally get serious about cutting spending and raising taxes. It was the fact that they were spending a third of all taxes on interest. The way he described it to me is the Canadian public basically felt that we were taking a match, lighting a third of their money on fire and throwing it in the fireplace. And that had to come to an end. We had to get to a point where all the taxes were not going to, to pay foreign bondholders, but to pay for things that Canadians cared about. The other thing is that it's, <coughs> as entitlements keep going up, they squeeze things that you really care about. The Discretionary part of the budget, you could think of all the stuff that we think of the federal government's Investment in the seed corn of future GDP is primarily found on the discretionary side of the budget. It's stuff like education, uh, retraining, infrastructure, research and development—all those things from the discretionary side of the budget. Most of the stuff that helps children is on the discretionary side of the budget. And one of the risks you have is that even though um, we have, to this so far, generally well-protected programs that are good for education and for children's welfare. But that gets harder and harder and harder as the ongoing pressure of healthcare costs and middle-class entitlements starts to squeeze. This is a very nice chart put together by the Urban Institute, which divides the federal budget into purpose, and you can see that while the portion spent on children is, has has stabilized at around 10 percent, it will get pressured downward in the coming decade as the interest on the debt mounts and as the growth of middle-class entitlements uh, um, consumes more and more of the federal um, of the federal uh, uh, budget. Now, there's another another, um, problem the country faces. Sorry?
3: The the interest on the debt. Now, does that fluctuate based on demand for uh, treasury bills? I mean, can the interest that's established this year, I mean, suppose the the debt is, you know, $15 trillion and the interest is very low, but suppose now that the the demand for uh, treasury bills goes way down and the interest goes up. Would that cause the interest on that $15 trillion to balloon? Absolutely. absolutely. It would. So, so it's projected. It, it is, but,
1: it, the but only as it's rolled over. I mean, if you're holding old bonds that you've sold at 3%, the fact that you're going into a market at 6% doesn't mean that your 3% body of bonds will suddenly become 6% bonds. Right, so it's a, la- it's a lagged effect. And it depends on the current borrowing in any period. What its impact will be relative to the total bond value outstanding. And so, so
4: what percentage is long term debt versus short so term debt? So the turn of
2: maturity of the federal debt is probably about five years, which basically, the average turn of maturity, which means that about half the debt rolls over in a five year period.
3: Um,
2: but the point I want to make about here, though, is that these assumptions are all based on a normal path for interest rates. They assume that in the year 2016, the Fed <coughs> will decide that, job, that it, it's time to put, switch its attention to inflation and begins to raise interest rates, and short-term interest rates stabilize around 4%. If you get that upward pressure that you're describing, then that would obviously make matters worse. But as I was trying to explain a few slides earlier, I think that's a a low probability outcome. And if it were to happen, it would probably occur against the context of the economy growing very strongly, which is a nice problem to have. Now, what I want to segue to here is to explain that there's another problem facing our country, which is not just a deficit. We have a serious problem of human capital, which is to say both the quantity of people we're going to have working in the country is going to be lower than we realize and and for two reasons. The first is demographics. We're used to thinking of the United States as being a country that's demographically blessed with higher population growth than countries in Europe and and Asia. But we're losing that advantage. Um, Between 2008 and 2012, the Census Bureau significantly lowered the future size of the American population for two reasons. First of all, immigration is turning out to be much lower than we thought. Um, we've been very effective at shutting off the border. And secondly, fertility is much lower. In fact, especially fertility among new immigrants is much lower, starting to approach the level of native-born Americans. And so for the, that reason, in the year 2050, there will be 10% fewer Americans than the Census Bureau thought just four years ago. And there's a, there's a, a bigger problem than that, <laughs> which is the proportion of people of working age that we actually have. Uh, This proportion of them that actually work is going down. This is what we call the labor force participation rate, and it tells you basically what percentage of people over the age of 16 are either working or looking for work. As you see, it's fallen to its lowest level in almost 30 years now. And it's very troubling, and it's uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, part of this is cyclical. It's part because the economy is weak. When the economy is weak, some people give up looking for work or they decide a better use of their time would be to go back to school. Um, Part of it is demographic. We're getting older, and so there are people who are reaching early retirement. And part of it is structural. People who have been unemployed for a long time have become unemployable, and they simply dropped out of the labor force. And a huge number of those people have ended up on disability insurance. And this is an astonishing waste. It's a a waste of money because we're spending money to to, to uh, um, to keep those people. On disability, and it's a, and it's a waste of their capital and their potential. They're not out there contributing to the economy, contributing to their own welfare, and their own sense of well-being. So well, I think can I make just one
1: small point about sure. those disability numbers? Yeah. Because if you go back to the chart, if you look at the point at which the Clinton welfare reforms were passed in 1995, that's where you see the numbers really start to take off. And Sandy Jenks' work and others points to the fact that what's happened is that large numbers of people who are being carried on welfare roles have been moved over to disability roles because of some degree of disability. It wasn't that the disability numbers were lower prior to the Welfare Reform Act. It's just that they've been shunted into the SSI disability program. So that's important to understand.
2: Yeah, a larger, I'll make a larger point about that later, but yeah, I I don't disagree with you there. Um, Sorry, I just just turned the wrong Sorry about that. That's that. that's That's the wrong key. So I think that this, um, these, these, these twin problems of a long-term deficit and a human capital problem point the way to, I think, are some logical approaches to how you want to reduce the deficit. And the, the main point I want to say is you want to do it in a way that um, maximizes your opportunity to start to address the shortfall you have on the human capital side. Uh, you could, um, you'll could you notice I'm not talking a lot about taxes. Well, um We have raised taxes, and we can raise them further. The president has a plan out there to raise taxes further. But even if he raises the taxes that he has said he will raise, it doesn't really essentially solve the problem. As I said, it at best stabilizes the debt-to-GDP ratio, and only in the near term. It it still leaves it rising in the long term. To uh, make a significant um, uh, dent in this uh, problem, you need to raise taxes a lot more than he said. You probably have to raise them on on the middle class. He is by saying basically that 98% or 99% of households are off limits for tax increases, he severely constrained his ability to actually deal with this problem in a holistic way. But as a political matter, it's probably the case that Americans just are not going to (coughs) tolerate the breadth and magnitude of tax increases that would be necessary to solve this problem on the tax side alone. So if that's not what you're going to do, then the logical side is you've got to do stuff to reform entitlements. I think there's a couple ways to do this, but I think the first way I would do it is to try and get the retirement age up on both the Social Security and Medicare side and get people to work longer. And we have some experience now in how well this works. These, um, In 1983, one of the most enduring pieces of long-term deficit reduction we ever passed were the 1983 Social Security amendments, which raised payroll taxes and, beginning in 2000, started to push back the age at which people could retire. And the impact that's had on labor force participation for older Americans has really been quite striking. I don't want to oversimplify because there are a number of different phenomena going on here, but these charts just show, for the case of men, um, that those who are working full time for wages and salaries have been declining for many decades and began to turn up in the late 1990s. And the participation rate of older uh, workers is one of the few that has actually held steady since the recession, as opposed to actually going down, as it has for almost everybody else.
1: Tuition um,
2: payments today. One of the objections that people make to this, they say, well, um, the. Uh, uh, not everybody can work longer at the age of 65. And so uh, there are people who work in uh, who have uh, chronic health problems, who've worked in uh, types of jobs that have uh, left them physically unable to keep working. Um, and that is completely true. But it's also the case that that proportion of people is smaller than it used to be. And so it must be the case. In fact, we know it's the case that, on average, more people can have a fulfilling work life past the age of 65 than used to be the case. And we should design our programs to encourage as many of those people to work, not necessarily 40 hours a week, uh, maybe 30, maybe 20, but we need to start, I think, redesign both the private and the public sector uh, definitions of work to um, have a more logical transition into our later years so that more of those people can keep working. While And one of the great positives of the Affordable Care Act is that it's now created in some sense an almost complete safety net for those older seniors who for some reason cannot continue to work or do not qualify for private health insurance. So some people who would not be able to keep working past 65 um, one of the concerns, is if they can't get Medicare, well, they end up on Medicaid, they end up on disability, they end up on um, on the Affordable Care Act exchanges, which is what you want. You want those safety nets designed for those people who simply cannot work past a certain age, while you um, incentivize those who can work to keep working. <coughs> Oops, Greg, can
1: you say something to, as I looked around the room, I was sort of thinking what my students say when I talk about keeping older workers in the economy. Tell these younger workers why we should stay in an economy with slow-growing job market prospects for them. They don't don't quite.
2: So uh, the first thing I need to do is go back to uh, something that you might have learned in first economics, which is a lump of labor fallacy. Uh, There's a a, a notion that if you preserve or create a job for one person, it must take a job away from somebody else. And this is a subject that often comes into play when you talk about early retirement and uh, life cycle issues. If, uh, for example, Harvard abolishes mandatory retirement, doesn't that make it harder for young professors to be brought on board? It may in a micro sort of sense, but the country as a whole, the more people that work, the more income they generate, the more they spend. Therefore, the more demand for goods and services they generate. And therefore, somebody needs to work to ge- to produce the goods and services. So on, a, on an economy-wide basis, it cannot be the case that you will run out of jobs or work for people to do. It it speaks, I think, to the priority that as we, um, in my view, need to modify retirement uh Arrangements and retire and uh, work to retirement transitions. You need to be cognizant of precisely that issue of ensuring that there's a pathway for younger workers to be brought into specific establishments. But that doesn't take away from the case that, as an economy wide, uh, for for an entire country, this is perfectly logical and <coughs> it's not right, and it, and again as a matter of economic arithmetic, must work. <laughs> um, the um, so. The final point I want to make is that, um, so liberals uh, recoil in horror at the um, budget that Paul Ryan has brought out today and all the cuts he wants to Medicaid, make to Medicaid and food stamps and education and so on. Uh, the, um, through, through a variety of administrations, through this administration, the safety net has been strengthened. We have the Affordable Care Act. We've made a variety of income tax credits for lower income families stronger. and and. Uh, if I were um, a liberal trying to advise the president, I would be saying your job is to preserve these things and make sure that not just next year or the year after that, but 10 years from now, they'll still be there and they'll be protected. And what you worry about is that if you don't deal with the entitlement program uh, on the middle class side, is that these things that you have fought so hard for to be kept will be next on the chopping block. And um, this is a quote from Gene Sperling, who's right now the president's uh, National Economic Council director. Uh, and he did the same job for Bill Clinton back in the 1990s, and he used to articulate what he called what he called David Stockman risk, which is a risk that when the deficit becomes such an overriding concern that you just take a meat axe to everything, you take a meat axe to stuff that liberals really care about. The threat is that entitlements <clears throat> have such a broad, vociferous, and politically <clears throat> powerful constituency, precisely because they're the middle class, that they will be protected while the burden falls on the people. The poor, the politically weak, is the ones that the safety net was designed to strengthen. So um, while there's a lot of interesting stuff in Paul Ryan's budget today, I think it's interesting that, once again, he doesn't touch any retirees. He doesn't touch anybody who's over the age of 55. But he does significantly cut back Medicaid. He significantly cuts back food stamps. Now, in his view, you can do this without making people vulnerable, without ma- um, putting people, um, taking away stuff that people really need. I'm not sure that he can accomplish that. You know, I take him at his word that's what he intends to do. But at the broader point I'm trying to make is that you're sort of, in that budget, you sort of see um, what happens to priorities when you do not have the courage or the um, uh, strategy for trying to make middle class entitlements affordable. So I'm going to stop there and Thank take you,
1: on Greg. all the that's questions a, that that's you want to That's a great introduction. Um, what we'll do is we'll have students uh, Uh, get the first shot at questions. Uh, I'm going to ask the question, though, to lead off with moderator's privilege, which I asked Greg in the hallway before we came in, which is, uh, why not talk about more revenue? And why not talk about more revenue from those most able to provide revenue to the federal government? We are historically uh, one of the most lightly taxed people in the OECD. We have been lowering rates on upper incomes, uh, households now consistently. Uh, for years. We've made some bump back up, but the rates are nothing like what they were 40 or 50 years ago. And we have to remember that it was from 1945 to 1975 that debt continued to, I'm sorry, debt continued to go down, and deficits were not a significant problem to the federal government. And this was the long Roosevelt era of the the post-war period. It's really only been in this period of sort of Reaganomics that we have seen actual deficits emerge as problems. So a fundamental liberal question is going to be, with the United States, except for this very recent period, at the low end of government share of GDP of all industrial countries, why aren't we seeking to raise that total share to cover the deficit? Why why has revenue stayed off the table here? So, okay. I,
2: so I guess I would say that, certainly since January, it has not been off the table. We did actually raise taxes on the wealthy, and part of the Affordable Care Act was uh, and the introduction of a new tax on Medicare, um, uh, um, a new Medicare tax on investment income for the, uh, for the upper uh, 1 or 2 percent of households, and a new 0.9 percent um, surcharge, Medicare surcharge. So, on a number of fronts, we have actually begun to raise taxes on the wealthy. Um, but I would say that one of the things that I find sort of distressing about the whole tax debate is that while we tend to label the conservatives as the one with the inflexible allergy to raising taxes on anybody anywhere at any time, that allergy is pretty prevalent among Democrats, too. Um, I like to say that we have two parties, one party that wants to keep taxes down on 100% of taxpayers and one that wants to keep it down on 98% of taxpayers. There's a reason why Senate Democrats have taken four years to produce a budget resolution. They'll finally do it tomorrow. But one of the reasons is that so many Democrats did not want to go on the record of that supporting higher taxes for anybody, not even the rich. And now that it's been taken, the higher taxes for the rich have been taken off the table, um, uh, even that going any further than that, it's just going to be very, very hard for Democrats to swallow. Another way of saying that is that the, the allergy to higher taxes in this country is so profound that it's become very difficult for either party to really talk about it in a realistic way. I do not happen to believe that you can um, balance, uh, you can achieve the types of, the, the downward path of the debt that's necessary by raising tax on the top 2% alone. And I also... Um, I don't part, think that
1: wasn't what I was proposing, sure, but yeah. a, a heavy emphasis but on I the would, top 2%. Um,
2: so you might want to I think, uh, so what we've seen in the last 10 years, actually, is we have now um, lowered taxes a lot on the middle class. So, for example, um, uh, Bush lowered taxes on everybody. Uh, He lowered them most on the rich, but those have now been reversed. Uh, uh, But he lowered them a lot on the middle class as well, and those have been preserved. So we have have yet to actually tell the other 98% of Americans that you have these great entitlement programs, maybe you should think about paying for them. And I think that as long as we continue to say that, it's going to be very difficult to have that, um, solve that problem. There is an issue of inequality in this country. So one of the liberal um, priorities is that when you go about raising taxes or correcting these problems, you do it in a way that corrects some of the inequality that has built up in the last 10 or 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, largely for non-policy reasons, largely because of economic reasons. I'm sympathetic with that. But at the same time, I think there's a political reason why you also do not want to break the bond between who benefits from these programs and who pays for them. One of the reasons social security is such an enduring program has been so and uh, no party realistically taught I mean beyond Rick Perry and also what happened to him, why no party realistically talks about significantly cutting it back is because of the broad support and because so <coughs> people who've paid into social security associate the benefits that they receive with the money that they paid in. And I think as a society you want not to go too far in breaking the bond between what people Pay in for the benefits they get, and the benefits that they get. So, if you end up, um, if you go <coughs> in the direction of eventually saying we're going to expand all these entitlements, but only two percent of people are going to pay for them, I think it begins to corrode political support for these programs, and that's not a healthy thing.
1: So, okay, I think that's a refutation, not of my point, but it's an interesting refutation. But I'm, it's not for me to have a dialogue with you. Sure. So, but thank you.
0: Hi, Catherine Benhold. I work for the New York Times, and I'm a Newman fellow this year. Okay. I want to actually piggyback on this question. I want to flip it because. I get it. The tax base isn't big enough at the top to solve all of our problems just by raising taxes on the rich. But flipping the question is, can we solve the problems without raising the taxes on the rich, which is a different kind of question. And it sort of uh, looks at the fact that, for example, hedge funds in this country get to sort of declare all their earnings, their income, frankly, as capital gains, um, which means that they pay, I think, an effective tax rate of 6% or something like that. I was talking to Ken Robach the other day. Um, sorry yeah <laughs> it, it, it was
1: a murmur yes uh, yes
0: exactly so it's an incredibly low effective tax rate on these people and and um, you know there is a big revenue gain to be made just by charging fair rates of tax and by avoiding things like having trust funds for people like Mark Zuckerberg who don't <coughs> even have children yet, but put all their money in those trust funds for the future. You know there is a and question. And he could help
1: solve that population problem mm-hmm. too if he really committed. There is, there is that too. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> that's right. So, so
0: you know I, I, I don't accept that <coughs> we can just ignore the tax question on the basis of it won't solve all our problems. Agreed, but it surely is necessary. It's part of the mix, right? The that's
1: next. that was yeah. my point, right?
2: Yeah, no, I, no, I agree, but I mean the difference between you said can or should; and those are different questions. First, it's a multifaceted problem. To think that there is a single point of pressure that you can do on revenue or spending that solves a problem is obviously simplistic, and it's sure. not the case. And I have, and my magazine has strongly been of the view that you need a balanced approach, basically, you know, to borrow a word that's, uh, and you need some taxes and you need some spending. And I think you need taxes basically because um, you can't reform entitlements within the ten-year window adequately to make a difference to the deficits. Uh, raising taxes. Uh, does happen first, and because of the low propensity to spend of people at the very top, you do less damage by raising taxes on those people as well. And we've done that. We've raised $600 billions billion from them. Let's say we double that to $1.2 trillion, which is really what the president wants. As I said, you still don't achieve a necessary goal. Uh, you talk about, for example, the carried interest on the hedge fund guys. We're talking a couple of tens of billions of dollars. It's basically rounding error. Now, I think you should do it anyway. You, sh- you should do it anyway because a, a good tax system should not allow those types of income to be treated as differently as exactly. they are. Exactly. And especially if you then, as I say, think that you need to um, expose the middle class to being part of the solution, it needs to be done in a way that's politically supportable. And the middle class is not going to feel very happy about paying, paying higher taxes. There is a perception, a perception that's supported by fact, that people at the top are getting away scot-free. So uh, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's excluded from the uh, options out there. But I think uh, it need, needs to be considered holistically. Yes.
4: Um, so, Identify uh, I you yourself, say, please. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Danny Anthem. I'm a second-year student here. Um, Professor Parker will hopefully love that I asked this question, seeing as I'm neither a liberal nor an economist. Um, so I heard you say that you favor raising, raise, raising the retirement age, and you think that's going to have to happen. When we look at a number of liberal economists, um, Jared Bernstein, Brad DeLong, certain Nobel laureate on The Times, um, they say that this Who's idea that? is terrible. Uh, that all it does, in fact, is take people the short end, or uh, sorry, the young end of the curve, dump them in the private market, which ends up raising costs anyway, and there's very little actual reduction in terms of uh, in terms of the federal deficit in the short term and in the
2: medium to long term. So why, why are you right and they are wrong? Uh, why am I right in the Nobel Prize winning, John B. Clark Medal award winning, <laughs> Bestselling, who, who, has, who has made Ryan. mistakes before and <laughs> will make mistakes again. He is <laughs> mortal. you really want to step I think that they profoundly look at the question differently than I do. Think of the healthcare. He asked you
1: a journalistic form of a question, so that's how you got caught.
2: So. <clears throat> think of the healthcare problem, the healthcare spending problem. As healthcare spending as a share of GDP is going up a lot, and we, we need to fix this problem. So raising the retirement age doesn't fix the numerator. It's correct that if you take a guy off Medicare, that dollar of spending that was previously paid by Medicare gets paid by a private employer, it gets paid by Medicaid, it pays by somebody else. But getting the retirement age encourages people to work longer. And if more people work longer, GDP goes up and it gets the denominator higher. So I think a win-win situation is that if you want to get healthcare to GDP ratio down, instead of attacking the numerator, get the denominator up. And that's why I think that this is a no-brainer.
1: And this is women. This is despite the fact that the U.S. healthcare share of GDP is twice that of the rest of the OECD. You think it's a question of sort of bringing them into quality. That would mean doubling the size of U.S. GDP to get the ratios.
2: Well, first of all, I never said that the goal was to get it down to OECD averages. But what I'm trying to do is say there are ways of dealing with this problem that doesn't necessarily create these Hobson's choices that liberals are afraid of. And the other thing is saying liberals should be proud of themselves for having essentially patched the last big hole in the safety net, which was the lack of universal health care coverage. And having created that, and going back to this slide, having created this robust safety net and close off this last patch, they need to then short up, protect it, by then taking advantage of that to do what they can, what they couldn't do. I would not have advocated raising the retirement age on Medicare pre-Affordable Care Act precisely for that problem. When the CBO looks at the issue of raising Medicare retirement from 65 to 67, they estimate that 95% of the affected people will find insurance through some other means. Some of them will end up, for example, on Medicare through disability, some will end up on Medicaid. Some will end up in the exchanges. Some will maintain private coverage. So there's five percent of people, and um, I and we will come up with ways to deal with those five percent of people. But the uh, the end result is. And by the way, I think when you raise Medicare retirement age, you need to actually re- raise Social Security retirement age as well. You need to do them in tandem. That's you don't get a lot of um, big increase in participation on the Medicare side alone for many complicated reasons. So I think it's. A win win. And I think that liberals who don't want to deal with this are, in the end, going to hurt themselves. And uh, this is something Peter Orsag told me in a recent interview, and it's really stuck with me. He said everybody, liberals and conservatives alike, know that entitlements have to be dealt with. And so if liberals deny that fact and try to procrastinate, then they increase the odds that when the problem is dealt with, it will be dealt with by a Republican president and a Republican Congress. It increases the odds that Paul Ryan's budget will be the way that these issues are dealt with. If you were a liberal and you right now held the White House, wouldn't you rather have that be solved by a Democratic President and a Democratic Congress? So that's okay. a purely, sure. that's a purely political pure yeah. point. Another so. student.
1: I'm
5: Carly, I'm a first-year student here. I was just going to ask for you to talk more about Paul Ryan's budget and how you think it's going to shake out with the Senate budget <clears> tomorrow. I mean, <coughs> surely they're not going to be compatible at no. all, but
3: um,
0: how do you think that's going to be moving forward?
2: Well, uh, gosh, I wish I wish I knew. From from, I got to tell you, from a purely journalistic point of view, this fiscal stuff is just exhausting me. I mean, I really, uh, you know, um, it's bad enough for the country, but um, and and all the people who cover budget stuff down in Washington feel the same way I do. Week after week, you trek back to work and you're writing about the new stupid, idiotic um, chapter of this game. It's like Groundhog Day. It's just like every every frigging week, it's it's another thing. I I, the first the truth is, I don't know how it's going to be solved because. Uh, Obama says we have to have higher taxes and Paul Ryan says no, no more taxes uh, so we'll have a budget resolution um, what I hope we will have actually is a variety of small changes around the margins where the President and uh, and, and Republicans kind of find a little bit of common ground perhaps on uh, dealing with some issues of discretionary, a little bit of entitlements mostly on the farm and on the government, civil service uh, pension side um, and uh, but to, to be honest i'm not terribly optimistic i think right now if i were to make a prediction i would say that we will pass a continuing resolution which will keep the government operating at current levels through the end of september then we will go through all of this all over again in the first week few weeks of october and we will continue to uh, lurch forward from like one half-baked solution to another and we will continue to exacerbate the problems that i'm talking about we will keep cutting the wrong spending and leaving the long-term problem unaddressed uh, there's a piece in the washington post recently that said that um, and this
1: is—you do presume that the Republicans would negotiate with these Democrats to make these kinds of deals to reduce these spending. What's the evidence for that?
2: To reduce spending?
1: Well, to reduce spending in a way that both liberals and where's where's the compromise point? I mean, we've got a, you've talked about the Ryan budget, but there's a Ryan and a Murray budget out there, and what you're saying is we've got to reduce entitlements, but liberals aren't saying no, we won't reduce entitlements. They're saying reduce entitlements and raise revenue, but you're taking. Via politics, the idea of more revenue raising, at least from the top part, off the table. So, what's what's the negotiation?
2: Well, and you're um, not I'm not, I, sorry, not yeah, channeling sorry. the
1: Republicans. Sure. I'm just saying I'm trying to understand the argument. Uh,
2: well, if I were, um, I think in the last few weeks, what we've seen, especially with this charm offensive, is a possibility that the uh, I think what the White House sees as the route to a solution, is that you essentially find some allies among se- Senate moderate, Republican moderates, or what passes for Repo- she, Republican she's, she's moderate. She's retiring, I thought. That, <laughs> right, no, no. Uh, well, he's going to have a primary challenge in North Carolina okay. in a couple, so right. in a couple of years, but he'll, until right. then. Right. you got two years of Lindsey Graham. So set, that, That's essentially the White House strategy. You try and actually create a solution that can get five Republican votes, and then you present the House with a fait accompli. At this point, We don't really know how united the Republican front in the House is against no tax revenues. And there's a part of me that believes that if they were given the types of entitlement reforms I'm talking about here and which many Democrats have in the past been open to, they would actually raise revenue if it was in the context of tax reform. Um, It was interesting that Eric Cantor gave a speech to the American Enterprise Institute uh, a few months ago. So they're dealing with a a political problem, not just an economic problem. Um, Sheila Bair on the television this morning had a great line. She said, they're the part... She's a Republican. She said, we're the party of the 1%, and mathematically, that's just a politically losing place to be. (laughs) And so they realized that they need to um, uh, be a party for more than that, talk more about uh, in a positive way. And so when Eric Cantor gave this speech, when he came to talk about fixing entitlements, he didn't talk about vouchers, and he didn't talk about block grants. Now, that may still be at some level what they want to do, and there may be a place in the next 10 years where variants of those need to be addressed. But he talked about stuff, for example, like abolishing the artificial distinction between Part A and Part B of Medicare, which is something I advocate, by the way, because it's, you can do stuff with deductibles and copays that you can't do now. There's a lot. I, I, uh, I'm a perpetual optimist. My, that optimist, it's, it's been severely shredded in the last few years, but, keep, I, but I keep coming out thinking that there's enough common ground on these sides that they actually can do some small stuff and get it fixed. I'll be the first to admit that I don't see the pathway forward to, and that's why I say my base case right now right. is uh, uh, essentially muddle through.
1: Chris,
4: uh, I'm Chris Arnold. I'm also a Neiman fellow and an NPR reporter. Uh, and just to come back to this question of taxes on the wealthy, I, am, I have a chart to go with my question. <laughs> if we look at, uh, you know, this age. is the share of income <laughs> of the top one percent, and it's back to basically 1929 levels. And the top one percent earns twenty three percent of the income, or they did in two thousand and seven. I and mean, we're talking about twenty three percent of all the income in the United States. I mean, there, it's not just a few hedge fund managers with capital gains and oh, it's on the margins. I mean, that's a huge amount of income. And as income inequality rises, what's the economic argument against bringing this <coughs> curve
1: back into line with some kind of wealth redistribution? Even though that me, would you make it look more there. like the seventies. Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, so, first of all, that's obviously pre-tax. Um, that's Emmanuel sayss number, right, from Berkeley? Um,
1: it's uh, close to a and The 23 is, yes. Saez
2: and Piketty? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so um, you would see if you did the same chart of the top 1% portion of tax revenue, that's also been going up. So, in fact, one of the um, ironies is that as their tax rates went down, the loss of revenue was more than made up for the how much of the pie they kept grabbing. So they actually generated even – more the revenue. So look, you could raise taxes. First of all, more uh, the
1: income tax revenue, not of the total federal income or the total government income. Right. The proportionals didn't grow. The big, the big growth. No, is I sure believe that it would
2: actually be true of all uh, well, revenue. That even when you included payroll taxes and property taxes and so forth, it would the be. The payroll attenuated. taxes are capped.
1: They couldn't possibly be contributing to payroll taxes. They're not. Uh, Social security is similar. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I mean Payroll, yeah. I mean, they contribute to Medicare. Not, they no, don't contribute no, what I'm to saying is, security. even if you include
2: all uh, all taxes, so that, including <clears throat> those uh, more aggressive taxes would attenuate the trend, but you would still probably find the, the top 1% paying a growing share of all taxes. Now, that's not a reason to say they can't pay more. Now, first of all, you said it's not just a few hedge fund managers. It almost is just a few hedge fund managers. Steve Kaplan at Chicago and a couple other folks did a great study a few years ago. They tried to uh, figure out how much of that one percent was people connected to finance. So they actually track down the top hedge fund managers, the top private equity managers, the top traders on Wall Street, the top lawyers, and all this stuff. And they think it's half of that one percent.
0: So if you redefine capital gains tax as income tax, when it was and act- it's actually income
2: we're
1: talking about, surely that would be a capital gains is income tax. But I understand your point. Or, ordinary income, or, absolutely, right. not as recategorized as I
0: mean, separate. There's no reason it should not be taxed as income. Well,
2: capital gains. Yeah. When well it, no I wouldn't go quite that there's actually strong e- well, uh, No
1: there's actually there's mixed data I mean there's been a, economists have cycled in and out about whether or not lowered not rates support. on capital gains is yeah. points in one vector to the other I mean I know yeah. what the yeah, economists yeah. position yeah. is but right. it's mixed,
0: right. it's mixed. It, Yeah
2: so but I want to address your question directly. So I think what you're saying is, can't we solve this problem by making- No, no, consort- not the entire problem, Sorry. just
4: to get a big chunk of revenues from the wealthy who are reaping, and even as the rest of the country is split into hard times, yeah. the top 1% is making more and more money. Granted, they're paying a larger share, but you know, isn't there a lot more money to grab there and still be fair?
2: So I think that when those data are updated for 2012 or 2013, you'll see that line coming down somewhat, because one thing we do know from the last few years is that there's a lot fewer hedge fund managers, a lot fewer people are making. Now, the ones that remain, Making a lot more money, but they're not.
1: But that wasn't the data last year. You saw that the major income growth was coming at the very top of the income. I mean, that's the data from the last two years. Is the in, the income recovery of U.S. households is coming all at the top right top 20%, now? Twenty
2: percent, I think. Yeah, but
1: I mean, within that, we know what the ratio of the one to the twenty is, and the one is picking up the biggest, lar- the very largest chunk of the of the of toilet. The so what I'm
2: saying. I'm not actually sure that when we get the data for 2012, it'll actually show that. I mean, uh, it's it's an empirical question. I'd be curious to know what the answer is. But I think the larger question is uh, yeah. I haven't I uh, personally I and, and my, my newspaper have as an editorial position said those people should definitely be paying more tax. Yeah. I guess my point is, is it, it, it's not to exclude that. It's to make two additional points. We can't solve the problem and that we should uh, stop saying the middle class must never, ever pay higher taxes. There's another question. I don't... And I've wondered about this for years because I really don't have the answer to it. Um, I mean, I have for some time felt that um, insofar as economic trends such as globalization and superstar phenomenon are leading to this dispersion in incomes of folks that 1% one percent doing really well, then there is a strong case that the tax system ought to be more progressive to, to basically lean against, that, lean against that trend. But what if the trend never stops? What if, I mean, what, like, we're well, back to where we're Then we, we were all go 20s. to
1: business school, and the Kennedy School shuts
2: down. It's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. We've got sort of what if path. every single year what are you doing we, on we become the side more of the river unequal? So do every year we raise the taxes on the, on the wealthy mm-hmm. that much more? I suppose it's possible. Yeah. But, again, as a political... No, but,
1: but those aren't, I mean, come on. I mean, that's not the, I mean, you could do a number of things. You, could have, <coughs> you, can, you can install sh- shareholder uh, incentives to cap out certain kinds of income. You can turn uh, a lot of these corporations, like Goldman Sachs, back into partnerships, and make my old high school, my old college classmate Hank Paulson put his own money at risk when he does this. You would downsize the size of the of the investment banks relative to commercial banks. You'd separate the commercial banks from the investment banks. That's
2: you'd, an you'd, entirely different no, no. They're uh, all ti- uh, no, no, They're group.
1: all tied together yeah. because it's not a question. You had you had a solution, yeah. which was well, are we going to just let taxes rise as the income share rises? And I was saying to you that's not the only solution on the table, so I didn't want us Mm -hmm. to be trapped into solving a problem that wasn't the only solution, that's (coughs) all. So I'm just introducing additional ways to think about the problem, which are valuable. So other questions? Martin.
6: Yeah, hi. Martin Nissenholtz. I guess you you, you talked about a balanced approach before that you and the economists both sort of have generalized about, Mm -hmm. which I've often seen. Can you explain why, uh, at least from your perspective, you think the president walked away from Bull Simpson? I mean, there are many versions of balanced approaches, but that was certainly one of them. And it was his commission, and it would have solved a lot of these problems and yet never even got off first base.
2: So I've heard two different versions of that. And the version, when I was actually reporting on the commission, the version that the White House gave was... As soon, if, the, if Obama had endorsed Bull Simpson, then he would have um, uh, immediately made it his position, and Republicans would have immediately opposed it because it was his position, and the final solution would have moved to the right of Bull mm-hmm. Simpson. And so as a tactical position, it was unwise for him to endorse that, because, in other words, he was open to ending up somewhere around Bull Simpson, but he wasn't going to start there because he would have been negotiated to the right of that. And that actually made a lot of sense to me as a political point of view. What I found somewhat troubling is since then, I've never actually heard Obama make that case, even not even to Bob Woodward. And I now doubt that actually was true at the time. I think that Bull Simpson, there were a lot of things about Bull Simpson not to like, things like its, you know. There were a lot of, of things, things about, about
6: every plan not to like.
2: Right. Uh, a lot of liberals hated what it did with Social Security. Um, a lot of Republicans hated that it left the Affordable Care Act in place, and so on. Yeah. Didn't really solve healthcare problem, uh, so once and the care problem. So essentially, the
6: answer is, unless everybody on either side gets what everything they want, there is no compromise. There is no balance. Yeah, the
2: but your question was there. more narrow, which is why didn't Obama endorse it? And going back to where I started out here, I think it's because Obama is not yet. No, no. President. You answered you
6: answered right. the question with respect to the starting point. I think that's a cynical. Perspective, but yeah, it is a political but I, one. So we He's are from Canada. Washington. He's not
1: an innocent <laughs> so, like us, say we're
2: right. on the well, It's, it's a cynical interpretation, but with a noble end. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Politics really isn't d- as dirty as you think it is. It just looks that way when you read about it. <laughs> right. um, but what I guess I'm trying to say is that subsequent events have cast doubt on the explanation I was given at the time, and I wonder whether I was spun. I just think, going back to my point that deficit hawks are made, they're not born. I don't think it's where Obama's heart was at the time. I think that he came in as a President, he had a lot of important things he wanted to accomplish. The deficit was not one of them, and God bless him, because the deficit was not in the first four years what he wanted to solve. It would have been disastrous if he had done that. And folks like Larry Summers um, uh, were utterly opposed to that. And so uh, Bull Simpson did not scratch the itch that Obama had. It simply wasn't a priority. That's why he needs to somehow demonstrate in the next year or two that something like that is his priority. And all I've heard from him so far is We're going to, there's a solution available that along the principles outlaid by the Bull-Simpson Commission, which is an abstract enough characterization that it could mean almost anything. Over here.
5: Hi, uh, Daniel Nadler. I'm a PhD candidate in economics at the U.S. Federal Reserve. So my question is on that. So you basically took up monetary policy as a possibility, sorry. Um, And then you said that because the interest rates are near zero, you sort of said it has to come from fiscal policy. So you know, my question is why? Why is that the case? Especially since you pointed out the major difference, among others, between Greece and the U.S. is that they don't control their own currency. So Americans are never going to agree about fiscal policy. But what we can all agree upon is punishing China, for example. And the largest, uh, you know, the China holds more of our our debt than all U.S. households combined. Um, uh, through extraordinary measures um, such as open market operations and quantitative easing, whatever you want to call it. Basically what the Federal Reserve can do is diminish the value of savings, right, that, that Chinese uh, Chinese investors hold and other foreign investors hold and so on. This is not unprecedented. The United States did this in the nineteen seventies as well. So my question is why why do you think it has to come entirely from fiscal policy? Why can't you know, one of the one of the very famous covers of your magazine was currency wars. right? Yeah. So what, what you know, would you advise against the United States engaging in the sort of strategic demodulation kind of, uh, like of foreign, foreign devils, specifically in
2: China. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. that's, <laughs> that's an easy one. Yeah, I'm against that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the point I'm trying to make about interest rates here is not to say there's a particular uh <coughs> The point that I'm making about uh, fiscal policy, about you don't want to do austerity while interest rates are zero, is a nonpartisan, apolitical statement. Larry Summers would agree with that. Greg Mankey would agree with that. Uh, Paul Krugman would agree with that. Um, The question about how, once you're off the zero bound, and interest rates are positive again, and the Fed therefore, by definition, has the means to cushion the economy as you begin to tighten the deficit doesn't answer the question of how you tighten the deficit, whether it be discretionary, whether it be entitlement, whether it be revenue. So um, you have to make that distinction between what I think is a positive technocratic statement and a normative political statement. So that's the first thing. Um, As to whether, uh, I think you're raising broader questions here about the legitimacy or the appropriateness of what the Fed is doing. uh, I could talk for uh, quite a long time about this, and I really don't want to bore you to death do, by doing that. But um, by and large, I think what the Fed is trying to do—this th- crowd less- loves
1: this stuff. <laughs> Trust me, they're not—they're not—they're not here for popcorn. They're, this
2: is, this is. It's to stimulate nominal demand enough enough that eventually unemployment falls back to its normal level. And they will be in a situation, once again, where you know, let's cross our fingers and hope that inflation will once again be a problem. As I said, that is a high-class problem, as they used to say during the Clinton administration. And it would be nice to have a situation where the economy was running so hot that inflation was what the uh, Fed had to worry about. You know, the question about China, I hear that a lot. And um, you've got to remember, China doesn't buy our bonds as a favor to us, right? China buys our bonds for the same reason that General, Motor does. General Motors mm. does cut-rate financing with your cars, because you won't buy their cars if they don't finance them. And we won't buy China's stuff if they don't buy our bonds, which is necessary to keep their currency low. Um, that said, supposing they were somehow uh, tempted to use that as a cudgel. First of all, China's share of bonds is actually uh, shrinking. The Fed now owns more than China does. Uh, and if, for example, China were to say one day, well, we're going to sell all these bonds because we don't think that you should be sending five debts <coughs> to Taiwan, well, um, I think that might be a reason for Ben Bernanke to say, well, we'll buy all the bonds that you sell, okay, just to make sure you don't disrupt the economy. And the thing about China has to keep in mind is that you can use that threat <coughs> once, but only once. Because if it doesn't work the first time, it's never going to work again. So um, I think the broader thing is that it's not in China's interest to do that. But um, uh, then, then you raise a final point about whether the Fed is, um, you said something about saving, I think, punishing savers or yeah, something. Yeah, puni-
5: punishing people who hold fixed income. Yeah. I mean, well, You talked about raising the retirement age in in some way or so on. Well, one way you can do that through monetary policy is just by reducing the value of fixed income to seniors, which we're doing right now. I mean, by inflating asset prices, we're diminishing the value of fixed income to seniors. And without having to change law or policy or retirement age, we're basically reducing the real savings and forcing them or some of them depending on their position to seek other sources of income
2: so a couple things first of all as you know when you lower interest rates the value of bonds sure. goes up right. so anybody who had a bond portfolio at the start of the process is doing very well well as a result of that second thing is um, you know as a as a factual <coughs> matter monetary policy mm-hmm. when it's trying to get the overall level of demand up in um, unemployment down uh, it's, a, it's a very blunt instrument they can't decide you know in the pursuit of a goal that's good for society as a whole who will be on the losing end of that and so yeah no question that some people who hold fixed income investments are going to have less income because, uh, in order to benefit the borrowers who are on the other side of the equation. It's exactly the opposite when interest rates are high. So, those distributional questions arise all the time. If the um, <coughs> Fed, uh, now, as a country as a whole, don't forget the United States is the debtor nation. The rest of the world holds more of our debt than we hold of theirs. So, as a first cut at the process, when you lower interest rates, a lot of the uh, lost income falls on foreigners, not on Americans. So, it's net positive for the United States. Another thing, it makes it much easier to sustain the kinds of debts we have and makes the uh, urgency to cut discretionary spending, which, as I've said, is a bad idea, less urgent. There are actually conservatives who hate the Fed for exactly that reason, because they think it's taking away the urgency. And the final thing is that um, even though the Fed is targeting a very low interest rate, ultimately the interest rate has to have some kind of relationship to the return on investments in the economy, which, the only way really sustainably to get the return on your savings higher is to have a growing economy that generates income, that makes business opportunities profitable. And uh, the only way to do that is to get the economy stronger and get us back to full employment. And and Bernanke said this recently, and I agree with him uh, completely. If he were to raise interest rates now because he wanted to do something good for savers, the the result would be the economy would probably fall back into recession. The stock market would collapse. More people would lose their jobs. And at the end of this process, people would have less savings, not more. So uh, the final thing is about distribution. I've actually looked at these numbers very carefully. Um, among households that own a lot of interest-bearing instruments, whether it's certificates of deposit or bonds, they are primarily wealthy people. They are very, very highly concentrated. They're all the 1% that you were talking about once they retired. The people who um, are real, the really hard-up seniors are the ones who depend heavily on Social Security and uh, an old age uh, supplemental and so on. Those things are all insulated from the effect of interest rates, and they're all indexed to inflation. So um, one of the things that I think ways a country has to stop doing is equating elderly with needy. And we should be proud that we've managed to essentially eradicate elderly poverty in this mm-hmm. country. But having done that, we shouldn't therefore say that we shall never, ever ask the elderly to make a contribution when we're trying to fix the country's
3: problems.
1: You have a question? I'm... I'm, I'm- Okay, go, and then I'll see if I can get a second one in. But we're running up on time. Okay, so
3: just quickly, um, who are you? Oh, so Evan Harrell. I'm a research associate at the Belfer Center. I'm a former Time Magazine journalist, so I come here to hang out with yeah. the old
2: crew. A lot of these names by the way. Um, <laughs> I recognize. Uh, That's an interesting crowd, so. Uh, so there,
3: there were. Um, this is not sort of my field, middle, uh, you know, uh, but there were a couple assumptions that you made that that that, that I found um, questionable. One was. You said that uh, you know we have a pretty robust uh, social safety net in the United States, and um, that uh, is, is that really is that really what you meant? Is that really what you feel is true? I mean, it seems to me that our social safety net are really prisons in, in a large regard, um, uh, and um, I think that's a, that's a problem. The other thing is that you said you don't want to decouple uh, the benefits uh, too far away from the people who are contributing into those benefits, but that seems like a, an essential. Uh, central component of
2: a strong social fabric um, well the decoupling point was respect to middle class entitlements no I I certainly don't expect the poor to be paying for food stamps (laughs) no that's not what I meant but um, if you end up in a situation where uh, see, we're arguing mostly about uh, see this stuff is 4% of GDP Okay, now that's been uh, overstated because we've been in a very deep recession, right. and that number's going to come down as people get back to work, all right? But um, what the argument here is is not whether that number should be smaller. It's about all that piece that deals with people who are middle class should be smaller. And if it's not going to be smaller, should those people who are benefiting from them over time, over their lifetimes, make more of a contribution? What I'm trying to say is that if you aim for a system where they get, where we keep increasing the entitlements to them, but the price is never paid by them, I don't think that's good. As a, as a social contract. Um, I saw that happen in Canada. I don't think it was wise. Um, I think it tends to uh, uh, make it harder to to justify those things. Um, th- there was another... Robust social... So, sorry. There's a, there's another point here that I didn't actually get time to talk <clears throat> about, but I do... Uh, actually, I... Uh, sorry, I, it's, it's not on the... Uh, it's, it's not here. But um, we as a country... Um, spent, for every dollar we spend uh, retraining the unemployed or on various active programs that get people who are not working into work, we spend $5 on passive assistance such as unemployment insurance, disability, and other forms of support. And that ratio, 5 to 1, is one of the worst in the OECD. In countries like Scandinavia and Denmark, in, in like Denmark and Sweden, it's more like 1 to 1. They have a much more vigorous proactive system of spending money to get people back into work so one of the things that I'm troubled by about the the way the disability system is set up now is that it's really kind of a trap, is that there's no um, incentive structure um, to tr- to or or pathway once you're in disability to ever get off. Only about 5% of people who go into disability ever go back to work.
1: Right, but this, again, is a direct function of the way that welfare was reformed under Clinton, which was hailed as such a success because of the numbers that took off of welfare, but the hidden dirty secret was a lot of those people were shifted over to so- uh, Social Security's disability ranks. So there's a... I completely agree with you, and it's something we ought to worry about, but it may well be that a lot of those disabled are actually seriously disabled, but we'd have to cleave that much more carefully. There's no general statement to be made about it it, it, relative to the Swedish system.
2: And so one of the reasons that I um, am so uh, despondent Mm. over the fact that we're fighting these budget battles um, over things like the fiscal cliff is that serious questions like how to reform disability get ignored. You know that uh, hearing that was on Thursday about the disability insurance system? Anybody hear about that one? I yeah, didn't think so, yeah. <laughs> Too busy talking about sequester. So um, uh, there are a lot of good ideas out there. I don't think you can fix disability overnight, but there's a lot of smart ideas about pilot programs. You can do early intervention programs. Uh, people, before they actually get the first disability check, get them into a program of active retraining and so forth. Actually creating an experience-rated system, a pilot project for employers, so that if they uh, find a way to take an, uh, an employee who's, who's injured, And actually keep them on the job and retrain them into a way and and rehabilitate them while still keeping them on the payroll, incentivize them in that that direction. Um, In Boston,
1: it has to do with reforming police retirement practices. We've discovered by reading the Boston Globe. Yeah, because everybody's suddenly discovering a disability injury in the last twenty-four months before retirement. So,
2: So. um, the what I worry about in that in that respect is that so. Uh, there are still flaws in the safety. the safety net. Is much stronger than it was than it was five or six years ago. Partly because some of these things happened. But when I uh, talk about um, sensible deficit reduction, I want to do it in ways that I think are win-win. So if we can find a way to get some of those people on disability back into work, then we both save money and we make their lives better and we get GDP higher. Cool. And I think, and one of the, and as I and to finish off this point, one of the reasons I find the current debate so depressing is because those sensible types of reforms are simply not getting any attention or any political oxygen.
1: Greg, this was a terrific discussion. Thank Thank you you. very much
3: for coming. (laughs)